The Ninth Hour continues on the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Here's your show host, Bruce McGregor. And good afternoon and welcome everyone on this Thursday, the 16th of August in the year of our Lord 2012. Bruce McGregor, delighted to join you here from our air studios at 133 26 Street in Omaha. And joining me today after a little bit of time off, we'll find out what she's been up to is... Me. <laughs> Sharon Doran here. Hi, Bruce. Sharon, and uh, we are here because it's time to open the Word of God. Hi, Sharon. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's great to be back. Well, you were a guest instructor for Renewal Ministries Biblical School up at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul this summer. Yeah. Among other things you were uh, doing on uh, your last month off here, and again, we missed yeah. you. Well, I missed you too, but the Lord was just awesome. This this whole summer's been great, but I mean, y- you know, there's been other things, but mm-hmm. that, that was really fun, um, doing the biblical school. And uh, the head instructor was a bishop from the Netherlands, Bishop Jan uh, Leeson, and he took us through the Gospel of Mark. And oh, he was an amazing, amazing biblical scholar. And I could have just sat there all day, every day, listening to his insights. But it will help because um, I'll be sharing a lot of those when we do our synoptics class this uh, this coming fall at Seeking Truth. So that was great. And then I took a couple graduate classes this summer. And I have just one class left for my master's degree, and I'm just so excited, as is my family, for to get that degree done. So, so thank you for the time off. It really was fruitful. Thank you so much. Absolutely, uh, you and your biblical insights were missed here, but uh, mm. we're glad to have you back. And you know, it's hard to believe that uh, looking at the calendar, <laughs> you know, here we are at uh, the midpoint in August, and that means uh, seeking truth Bible study is coming up for the fall. Yep. Uh, Creighton Prep, of course, full, but uh, yep. distance learning can still be obtained. That's right. And, you know, there's some cool things that the Lord's been doing. You'll like this one because it's a golf story. Um, a woman from Lincoln, Nebraska, phoned me earlier this summer, and her husband was golfing with a Protestant golf partner from Omaha. And the Protestant golfer told her husband about a new Catholic Bible study in Omaha that he really felt they should check out. Mm-hmm. So one thing led to another, and um, she found the website, SeekingTruth.net, and she called me, and the Lord has just opened some doors for uh, two new parishes in Lincoln, Nebraska, to start Seeking Truth program this fall in their wow. parishes. Cool. So they're going to be our very first satellite pilot classes, and we're just really excited about that. Uh, one of them is St. Joseph's Parish in Lincoln. They're going to be doing a Women's Day class. They don't have a lot of extra room uh, space in their building, but the other parish is North American Martyrs, and they're going to host an evening Seeking Truth class for men and women in Lincoln, and they may be able to accommodate more people. So uh, there's a, a woman named Julie at North American Martyrs Parish Office, and she would answer any questions. You can get her phone number off our website at seekingtruth.net in the announcement box if you're interested, if you're a Lincoln person and, and uh, want to give that a try. So it's just exciting. I hope um, I hope some of the Omaha parishes maybe next fall might might try that just to take some heat off our live Creighton prep class because there's a waiting list and I I can't stand turning people away when they're hungry for God's word in this format. So so we'll see what happens there. 
All right, and again, as we mentioned, you can always register for the distance education program at any time. Mm-hmm. For those of you who were not able to get into the live classes, SeekingTruth.net is where you go. And uh, Sharon, uh, you film your live class with all the multiple visual images and uh, then registered members online. I uh, can watch them at home or anywhere else in the world, really. A laptop, iPad, iPhone. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, um, that's an independent learning program. You have to be kind of self-motivated, but uh-huh. it works well for a lot of people. And another thing I did this summer, Bruce, was uh, I was on a EWTN program with Dr. Ralph Martin called Choices We Face. Ah, uh, yes. And it aired in July. And since that, we've gotten a lot of distance learners signing up from Ireland and the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, and, and many other states. So it's just so cool to see how God's working. And uh, that distance uh, ed format, I know some college girls are going to try it. They're going away to different schools, but they're going to Skype and do their small group discussions together and then watch the lecture and discuss it. I know a couple um, men last year, Catholics and Protestant, these two men would get together and watch it every week and discuss. So it could be used for moms groups, nursing homes, couples. I mean, you can just get as creative as you want. So anyway. Start with a visit to SeekingTruth.net. Thanks, Bruce. We'll get it going. Yeah. All right, Sharon, it's been uh, over a month here. Uh, what would you like to talk about today? Well, one thing I noticed, Bruce, that I wanted to point out is that for the next five Sundays in a row at Mass, the church is using John chapter 6 for the Sunday Gospel readings. Ah, okay. So five Sundays in a row, all on John chapter 6. What's that say to you? A uh, pretty doggone important book and <laughs> chapter yeah, in the Bible. Absolutely. That's right. John 6 is John's institution of the Eucharist, and it is such an incredibly powerful chapter. The church doesn't want to just zip through it, but uh, we'll use John chapter 6 for five gospel Sundays in a row. And so just giving us a few verses at a time, literally, to just chew on and savor the written word that literally describes this heavenly food, namely the flesh of Jesus Christ, who is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us and still tabernacles with us today in his true presence in the Eucharistic feast. So Bruce, uh, last Sunday we read from John 6. Can you just look at these verses 41 and 42? Absolutely. At verse 41, the Jews murmured about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I have come down from heaven? Mm, okay, let's stop right there and, and, and just ponder these three questions they ask. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? And how can he then say, I've come down from heaven? So they had known this guy since he was a kid. Mm -hmm. His dad was Joseph, a carpenter. His mom was Mary, the Jewish mom down the block. They knew their house. They knew their relatives. They aren't buying it that he is God in some kind of miracle food, miracle bread that's come down from heaven like a new Moses. Why not? Because they know, they know that he belongs to Mary and Joseph, and they think he was conceived like any other kid was conceived. And the Jews believed that in every birth of every child, there were always three partners involved, the father, the mother, and the spirit of God. Mm. So no child could ever be born without the spirit, because the spirit of the living God is that spark of all life. So these Jews believe that when Mary and Joseph came together in the primordial design of marriage, the Spirit of God was present and blessed them with the life of Jesus through the seed of man, namely Joseph. And they knew that it took the seed of man as one of the components to conceive a child. But we know from Luke's infancy narratives, there's further support from Matthew's gospel as well, 
But that's not how it happened for Jesus. Jesus was not born by the seed of a man. Joseph's seed has nothing to do with the conception of Jesus Christ because Mary was a virgin mother. And the words virgin and mother don't even go together. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we get so used to that, but that's just complete opposite. We know a virgin technically in all human ways cannot be a birth mother. That's scientifically impossible. Yet the church has always called her from the beginning of time, the virgin, sometimes just the virgin, the virgin mother, the Theotokos, the God bearer, the virgin mother of God. Mm-hmm. Sharon, I think it kind of begs the question, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on this before. Why didn't Mary simply tell them her annunciation story with the angel Gabriel, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth? Why didn't she say this is the way Jesus came to be? That is a great question. Mary is silent about the birth facts. Why? That's a great question, Bruce. Wouldn't it just help them to understand? Couldn't she just tell the story? But those Nazareth years are hidden years. Why don't they just tell everyone? I mean, I have wondered that before. Uh-huh. There's something that they're hiding. There's some. There's there's a, a mystery here. They're hiding this information from someone. There's someone who's waiting for another virgin so that he can slither up to her ear and whisper. Mm. There's a fallen angel named Lucifer that masquerades, like St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. he masquerades as an angel of light. And we have to remember back to the Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel in the Bible, the very first good news, and it happened immediately after the fall of mankind. After Adam and Eve had sinned, they realized that they were naked and they covered themselves with fig leaves. And God, in his incredible mercy, clothed them with the very first animal sacrifice, the skins of animals that he used to cover their shame. And they were banished from the beautiful Garden of Eden for their own protection and in God's greatest mercy, really, because now they were mortal. They're not immortal anymore. They had sinned mortally, which meant, as God promised, they would die. So no, they didn't drop over dead immediately, but they had spiritually died that day and they were banished from the Garden of Eden and from the Father who had initially created them in his own image and likeness. So after sinning, they were tarnished. Their image was not like his image. Their likeness was not like the likeness of an all-holy God. They had fallen from grace. They're mere creatures fallen from grace because of their own freedom that God blessed them with, but God does not want them to eat now from the tree of life in this fallen state because they eat from the tree of life in the middle of the garden they will live forever in this fallen state in this condition of sin and they would be separated from him eternally Mm. so it's his greatest mercy to banish them and to put the angels and the cherubim and the flashing swords to, to to keep them out right now until he could complete his plan they had made the wrong choice. They fell from grace. They they need a redeemer. They need a way back to the Father, someone who could unite them back to be a gate back into the Garden of Eden. And we know the end of the story. We know that he's going to send Jesus to be that gate, but they don't know that. And they know that there's been a promise. The Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, chapter 15, they will once again get a chance to trust God their loving father, that his words are true, that he has a plan all along for their salvation. And God said to Lucifer, the fallen angel, who's Satan, who had taken the form of a serpent, who had tempted the originally holy virgin named Eve, God said to Lucifer, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
So one is coming. One is coming who's going to be the offspring of woman. And at that time, all woman, all we know, woman was virginal. Mm-hmm. Eve has not laden with Adam yet to make Cain. That doesn't come until Genesis chapter 4. So Eve is in a virginal state. And God says that there will be some offspring of a virgin woman that's predicted to crush the head of Satan. God tells that right to Satan himself. So you can bet that Satan's going to watch every single woman virgin. If there is any virgin that becomes pregnant in a virginal state, a state of woman only, that offspring that she carries is the one predicted to crush Satan's head. So he's on it. Yeah. He's on it. He's watching. You can bet Satan did not like virgin women. He is the prince of the world. His native tongue is the language of lying. He was a murderer from the beginning. In him there is no truth. He's the father of lies. He's sly. He's clever. He prowls the world seeking the ruin of souls. He preyed on Eve, the virgin woman in the Garden of Eden. He posed as a clever snake. He whispered right into her ear, Did God really say that? And he puts that doubt in her mind. It's through his words that she's deceived, through language he cast doubt into her mind. Did God really say that? What kind of father is God? Doesn't he want to give his children every good and perfect gift? So Satan is waiting and waiting and waiting for another virgin birth. And he waits and he waits and he waits. And then one day Isaiah makes a prophecy to King Ahaz. And that's found in Isaiah chapter 7. And Isaiah tells Ahaz of a prophetic sign from God. God wants to reassure King Ahaz that he need not fear the invading armies of Syria in Israel in the light of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Bruce, can you refresh us what God had promised King David in 2 Samuel 7? Sure. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, this is speaking again of that offspring that's promised from clear back in Genesis 3.15. And uh, so Isaiah now says to King Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Let it be done as Sheol or high as the sky. But Ahaz answered, I will not ask. I will not tempt the Lord. Now, if you study this portion of biblical history, you will see that's not, uh, it's not that Ahaz doesn't want to tempt the Lord. It's really that King Ahaz prefers to depend upon his own might, upon the might of Assyria rather than the might of the almighty God. So then Isaiah says to him, listen, house of David, is it not enough that you weary human beings? Must you also weary my God? Therefore, the Lord himself shall send you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Virgins can't conceive sons. Now, Satan's on the lookout for this virgin that's going to conceive. And in the Hebrew translation, the word Alma that's used here to designate a young woman of marriageable age, um, that would be a specific reference to virginity because Mm -hmm. this was part of the Hebrew mindset. 
but the Hebrew language is really limited. But when um, this was translated into Greek, into the Septuagint translation, which was used at the time of Christ, the Hebrew word had been translated Alma, which uh, the, the Hebrew word Alma was translated in Greek as Parthenos, which normally does mean virgin. And so in the Greek translation, uh, the word virgin is used, and Matthew one twenty three. Um, reminds us about this Emmanuel that means God is with us. And for Christians, that's the incarnation. It's the ultimate expression of God's willingness to be with us. That's the Savior. That's the the the, the offspring of the Proto-Evangelium. It's understandable that this text will refer to the birth of Christ and the salvation he would bring. And so um, lately I've been reading the Church Fathers and their patristic thoughts on Mary. And one of the very earliest that really jumped out at me was St. Ignatius of Antioch. Now, he was passionately devoted to Christ, and um, he was the second successor to St. Peter in the Mm -hmm. Episcopal See of Antioch in Syria. And he was arrested during a persecution that began in the province around the end of the first century. So he's really an early church father. And he was brought to Rome in chains by 10 soldiers. And he uh, he used to refer to them as leopards because their fierce treatment of him. But during this long and painful journey to the capital city of Rome, where he was to be uh, burned alive in the flames in the arena and eaten by lions, he wrote seven beautiful letters to various Christian communities. And uh, in his letter to the Magnesians, he wrote that Christ himself came forth from silence. And uh, Ignatius of Antioch talks about silence and the silence that Mary demonstrated throughout her entire life. Mm -hmm. And he affirmed that silence is part of the mystery of God. And Sharon, that's interesting because it's hard for us to find silence today, but really it is part of the mystery of God. Mm. Silence. See, on the radio it's difficult. Very, very hard. (laughs) People are like, what's going That's on? Right. Reach, reach for Station, the volume. Stations off. Yeah. Okay, but but Christ Himself did come forth in silence. Mm-hmm. God of the universe is born in a cave on the outskirts of Bethlehem because there's no room in the inn, and He's born in the middle of nowhere, really in Podunk, Bethlehem. I'm sorry to our Bethlehem listeners, but in the middle of the night, He's born in silence. And even Mary most likely didn't cry out in, in labor pains. So yeah, even yeah. she's silent during his birth. There's debate on this, but after studying the new Eve parallels, we see that uh, Eve is cursed with pains of labor after the fall. And since Mary was born without original sin, and she's a pure and holy virgin full of grace, she most likely gave birth in silence with no pains of labor. The essential truth of the virgin birth, as taught continually by the fathers and defined by the church, does not concern the presence. It, it's really not concerned with, right. with the presence or absence of labor pains. But the virgin birth left Mary's virginity fully intact. Well, that one is uh, scientifically, like you said before, a little bit of a mind blower right there. Mm-hmm. But it's not mm-hmm. a study of science that we're on here, uh, folks. It's a journey of faith. That's right. That's right. And just to contemplate that, because the central truth of the virgin birth is that Christ was born of Mary miraculously as a sign. This is that sign that Isaiah was talking about. The virgin will become pregnant and bear a child. The sign and the confirmation of his divinity. The virgin birth was always disguised, uh, or I'm sorry, the virgin birth has always been distinguished from the the virginal conception right. because it was separate and a distinct miraculous event. It's not a natural birth. It's not explainable by natural causes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, Our Lady's physical virginity, with all that it implies, remained integral and intact before 
during and after the birth of Jesus. St. Bernard, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, the Catechism and the Council of Trent, they all teach the painlessness of the birth as a logical consequence of his miraculous nature. And the perpetual virginity of Our Lady is a dogma of the Church, part of the deposit of faith from which Catholics should not dissent. So the Church has always defined the dogma of Our Lady's perpetual virginity as virginity before during and after the birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I mean, it really is. Um, they don't speak about the um, physiology of the virginity in regard to Our Lady because um, Ambrose, I think Ambrose handles it nicely with delicacy in the fourth century. As early as the fourth century, he says, Mary is the gate through which Jesus entered the world when he was brought forth in the virginal birth, and the matter of his birth did not break the seal of virginity. Right. And Augustine says that that same power which brought the body of the risen Jesus through closed doors brought the body of that infant forth from the inviolated womb of the mother. So remember when Jesus walks through the doors after his resurrection? I mean, he doesn't break the door down. It would make perfect sense. That's right. And and I love Gregory the Seventh in the seventh century, Gregory the Great. Uh, The virgin birth is not a natural but a miraculous birth matched only by the escape of Jesus from a sealed tomb. So there's the sealed tomb. He he burst through with, you know. So anyway, those are, uh, shows the miraculous physical virginity of Our Lady is one of, uh, it's just a fundamental guarantee of the divinity of Christ. Right. Now in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, everyone, at uh, paragraph 499, we read, the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as Iparthenos, the ever-virgin. Good. So those earliest fathers really um, reveal a capacity to emphasize her mysterious maternal presence in the faith and life of the first Christians, and a presence rendered even more intense and maybe intriguing by the silence. Um, So, yeah. But Bruce, yeah, let's... Well, I was going to say, one other thing, you know, that we talked about a little earlier mm-hmm. was why wouldn't Mary just tell those people in John 6 about the virgin birth? Why was she remaining so silent on this issue? Okay, well, that's a great question. And it's, uh, if we look at St. Ignatius of Antioch, he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And uh, remember where Mary retired to, Bruce? Well, in John's gospel, Jesus gave her over to St. John at the foot of the cross. And we know that when John wrote the book of Revelation, he was on the island of Patmos because we're told that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance we have in Jesus, found myself on this island called Patmos because I proclaimed God's word and gave testimony to Jesus. That's right. And Patmos was one of the Sporadis Islands in the Aegean Sea. It was about 50 miles south of Ephesus. And uh, it was used by the Romans as a penal colony. So when John says, I write from Patmos because I proclaim God's word and gave testimony to Jesus, he's saying literally on account of God's word, I'm here at Patmos in a Roman prison colony, most likely. Right. So anyway, if you go to Ephesus today, you will see the home, the, the home of Mary. And uh, now listen what St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesus where Mary and John recited. He says that there are three mysteries in God's plan that had to be kept hidden from the prince of the world, namely the devil. Mm -hmm. Number one, the virginity of Mary. Number two, the virginal birth of the Son of God. 
Number three, the death of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. So this is why Mary doesn't blab. Right. Uh, Ignatius doesn't explain why or how these mysteries had to remain hidden from the devil, but other patristic fathers explain that Mary's marriage to Joseph was the means by which this mystery of the virgin birth remained hidden from the devil, the prince of the world. Because remember, the devil is waiting. He's waiting for this virgin to conceive a child. And he knows that that's the one that could crush his head. So, I mean, this, this battle is raging and he's watching. So Mary's silence keeps the mystery hidden from the prince of darkness. She doesn't blab. She, they, they, um, They'd look to others like an ordinary family. That's why these guys in John 6 are like, how could how could he be God? He's, mm-hmm. he's from Mary and Joseph. He's a carpenter. I mean, it's, it's Mary and Joseph's son. And remember when they were exiled to Egypt, um, after Christ was born in Bethlehem, they're exiled to Egypt to stay safe from Herod. Uh, those are hidden, silent years. And so when they re-enter, you know, perhaps people had forgotten some of the birth details. It is uh, she and Joseph allow God to reveal the mystery of the salvation in his own perfect timing. And that's going to be after the glorious manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection when it's safe, uh, when, when Satan's been defeated, you know, then, mm-hmm. then the word can come out. So Mary and Joseph are very good at two particular things. They trust and obey. They know God has a plan, a big plan, and they trust God to execute it perfectly, even though it seems as if it's not going to work out. The plan stays hidden until after the hour of glory, which is the hour of the crucifixion, when the prince of the world, Satan, thinks he's totally won it all, yet that's really the hour when he himself, Satan, is being crushed. The power of the cross, the power of the cross comes before the power of the resurrection. So those three mysteries lie hidden. Yeah, they're hidden from Satan, the virginity of Mary, uh, the virginal birth of the Son of God, and the death of Jesus on the cross. Yeah, yeah, they lay hidden. It it has to unfold. His revelation has to, and and he's, by that time, Satan's been defeated. He's been crushed and and destroyed. You know, that was a beautiful part in the Passion of the Christ, right at that moment where Jesus, uh, you know, expires on the cross. Yes. And they do that cut to, you know, Satan in in the hole in the ground just screaming. Yes. He realized it's over. He's been had. He's been had. (laughs) Yeah. And Mary keeps that all a secret. Yeah. And, And she ponders those things in her heart, and she doesn't, you know, just think how silently she held all those things. Yeah. So no one would find out, especially Satan. I think it helps us understand why these mysteries took so much time to unfold. Church doctrines and understanding took time to unpack and understand. And so when Jesus is raised from the dead, he is the firstborn of all creation. Mm -hmm. Um, Read this catechism quote, Bruce, will you, at 518? Yeah, Christ's whole life is a mystery of recapitulation. All Jesus did, said, and suffered had for its aim restoring fallen man to his original vocation. Mm, that's good. Yeah. That's good. I love recapitulation because he is the firstborn over a new creation. Right. He's a new Adam. And St. Paul tells us this several times. Just yesterday at the Feast of the Assumption, we heard a reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, you, can you read those verses, Bruce? Sure. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So death through Adam, life through Christ. Yep. Paul will go on and describe that more in Romans chapter 5. The church fathers start to unpack the meaning of that. Jesus, the new Adam, the firstborn of a new creation. If he's a new Adam, then who's the new Eve? The new Eve is perfectly Mary. Mary's the perfect new Eve. Mm-hmm. 
and Justin Martyr, one of the first patristic fathers, will write about this. And uh, that that we're probably going to have to save for another time. But just the parallel between the two virgins, Eve and Mary, Mm -hmm. two angels appear to them. Lucifer in the form of the serpent appears to Eve. Gabriel and the messenger of God appears to the Virgin Mary. Both speak into the Virgin's ear. Did God really say that? Says says the disguised Lucifer as the serpent. But the other angel, Gabriel, says to Mary's ear, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are going to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. Well, Mary would have known immediately that this is that same prophecy that King David had in 2 Samuel 7. Could this be the offspring they've been waiting for? So Eve goes against God's word and does exactly what God told Adam they must not do. Mary is just the opposite, totally obedient to the word of God. Let it be done to me according to your word. Thank goodness for her fiat. Amen. 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 Sharon, thanks so much. We appreciate it. God bless. You are welcome. God bless you. Have a great day. Bye.